Like the office they commemorate, presidential libraries are living institutions. Certainly it is my hope that the Reagan Library will become a dynamic intellectual forum where scholars interpret the past and policymakers debate the future. Welcome to a Reagan Forum, hosted by the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute. The Center for Public Affairs offers lectures and forums presenting perspectives on important public policy issues of the day from politicians, authors, members of the media, business and military leaders, and more. In this week's Reagan Forum, we go back to February 28, 2019, when humanitarian and award-winning film and TV actor Gary Sinise came to the Reagan Library to discuss his brand new book, Grateful American, A Journey from Self to Service. In front of a sold-out crowd, Gary sat down with the Reagan Foundation and Institute's executive director and shared the never-before-told story of his journey from troublemaking Chicago kid to co-founder of the legendary Steppenwolf Theater Company, world-famous actor, and tireless advocate for America's active duty defenders, veterans, and first responders. Let's listen. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Reagan Library, Mr. Gary Sinise. I forgot about that. I had forgotten about that. <laughs> no, yeah, thank you, thank God the door opened. That's all I have. Um, Gary, as I was saying, I'd like to roll this conversation forward by showing you a number of really great photographs and, and have you just give us a comment or two on, um, on what you see. It really is kind of a, a terrific retrospective. A number of these photos you can find in those thick of uh, Gary's book, but they, they tell a wonderful story, so I thought I'd uh, bring a few out this evening, if you don't mind. Sure, bud. Okay, here we go. Now, who are these little, <laughs> these, these, um, <laughs> these little troublemakers? Um, you, Gary, you, here's the photo right here, too, so you don't have to crane your neck around, but I think I recognize which one is you. Who would that be? <laughs> Yeah, the one in the penny loafers and white socks there in the middle, that's me. <laughs> so this is, this is uh, my dad took this picture, I think. And this is in the backyard of uh, our house in Highland Park, Illinois, when I was in sixth grade. I got a guitar, my first guitar uh, in fourth grade, and I started playing guitar. Um, and that's my little band there in the backyard, you know, entertaining the neighborhood. <laughs> it's, it's it's packed. Yeah. <laughs> the yard was filled with people. <laughs> Is it fair to say that what you got, what got you into the arts and entertainment business? Okay, so it all started with music. Is that? Uh, yeah. So back, this is the '60s. So uh, I was a big Beach Boys fan in the '60s. Yeah, I was. I remember fighting with, uh, like in fourth grade, fighting with kids in fourth grade who had Meet the Beatles. I don't know, for you old timers out there that remember this. He had Meet the Beatles, and then there was this Beach Boys live record, and we were like having a duke out as to which band was better, the Beach Boys or the Beatles. And I was a big Beach Boys fan. They, um, they inspired me. There, there's actually a shirt there's a, I have a picture of my first guitar, and there's a, there's a uh, Beach Boys record that has the, they have these striped shirts on. And you remember, it's a Beach Boys live record. I think they were live in Sac Sacramento or somewhere. And they were wearing these striped shirts, and there's a picture of me and playing my guitar in fourth grade with a striped shirt, just like, just like that. I love the Beach, oh, oh dear. Mm -hmm. Okay, now, I, you know, I remember I saw this movie. I don't, I don't remember you in it. So what is, what is <laughs> no. this? What's this? That, that is a 
program <laughs> from the first play that I was ever in in high school. And it was West Side Story. And I tell, I tell a, this is an important moment in the book for me because it changed my entire life. I struggled as a student uh, from an early age. I just struggled and struggled and had some, had, was having some trouble. And this was this late 60s and this early 70s. So what I could remember, I put into the book from that period. <laughs> and, and it's actually very detailed because um, it, this moment was so important to me. I was, I was struggling. I was standing in a hallway with, uh, with some of my rock band members as a, as a sophomore in high school. And, you know, I, I was, I could have nearly been kicked out of school. It was that bad. And um, this drama teacher walked by, this kind of powerhouse little lady, and she walked by and she looked at us and turned around and said, do you know West Side Story? And I said, uh, you mean about the two gangs that are kind of fighting and stuff like that? She says, yeah, you look perfect for the gang members, so come <laughs> and audition for the play. <laughs> and then she blew off down the hall and, and that was it. And, uh, you know, I laughed and, you know, theater kids, you know, I didn't think much of that, but, but I went to the, I went and, and saw all the pretty girls going into the audition, and I followed them in. And um, they gave me a script, and I didn't know what to do, and I just started stumbling around. I was making jokes, and everybody's laughing, and she thought I was amusing. She gave me a little part in the play. And I fell in love with theater, and it completely changed everything that I was doing at the time. And life went in a different direction. It spun into a different direction. All of a sudden, I wanted to go to school now because I wanted, wanted to be in all the plays and I wanted to take all the theater classes. And it's, there's a moving story in the book that I recall about that because it was such a pivotal, important, critically important time in my life. Now, let's fast forward, oh, I know, roughly five years from that moment. I thought Steppenwolf was a band. I mean, I don't know, what is this? All yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I loved doing theater so much in high school, I just wanted to keep doing it. And so I, I didn't go to college. And high school was hard, hard enough. I, I just couldn't. <laughs> uh, but I loved, I loved the, the theater department stuff. And so as soon as I graduated from high school, uh, got some kids together and we, and we started a little theater company. We found a little church. My parents knew the architects of a, of a local church and it had a kind of a big open space in there. And I asked uh, the, uh, my parents asked the architects if they would ask the church if they would let us do a play in there and they, and they gave us a key and said, yes, you can you just lock up when you go, you know? And, and so they, we were able to go in there. I got a job during the day. I had graduated from high school. The other kids were still in high school. I worked during the day, and when they got us out of school, we went to the church and rehearsed the play. And I was 18 years old. We called it Steppenwolf because somebody happened to be reading that book called Steppenwolf by... <laughs> And we needed to put something on the program, so we said, let's do that. And we put it on there. And this is actually a sign in front of a, a, a closed-down Catholic school that we were able, there was a big basement in this Catholic school, and it was open. And, the, and I went to the priest and said, could we use that uh, basement to put on plays in there? And he, and he said, sure. <laughs> so, so he, he gave it to us for a dollar a year as a write-off. And <laughs> we went in there and built an 88-seat theater. We had, uh, and uh, my buddy Jeff Perry, who went to high school with me and was in the production of West Side Story, he went off to Illinois State University. He met John Malkovich, Laurie Metcalf. Uh, he met my future wife, uh, Moira. Uh, many other great folks there, some of the early company, company members there. We started in the basement. We eventually moved into the city, which this is 1980 uh, with an expanded company. That's Malkovich up on the top, Glenn Headley right next to him. 
Uh, Jeff Perry off to the right by the tracks. That's Laurie Metcalf down on the bottom there. John Mahoney, remember John Mahoney? Frazier's dad, he passed away last year. That's him uh, in the back there, right next to Joan Allen in the white shirt. Joan Allen uh, nominated for three Oscars. And uh, just a great group of people. That's Moira right behind me. I'm, I'm the guy in the white shirt with all the crazy hair and the, and the glasses there. <laughs> <laughs> so this is um, this is a production of uh, a Sam Shepard play called True West. I write about this very um, uh, specifically in the book because it was the first production that Steppenwolf moved from Chicago. We had now moved into the city of Chicago. Uh, that that Catholic school basement was in a suburb that I grew up in, Highland Park, and now we're in the city of Chicago. And I directed this play called True West by Sam Shepard. And in 1982, we uh, secured the rights for New York. And it was the, nobody knew who we were. Nobody had a clue. We were able to get some money together for some, from some producers in, the new, in New York. And we took the show to New York uh, downtown at a small theater in New York called the Cherry Lane. It's about 180 seats. The play opened, it got rave reviews. New York Times raved about it and all the, all the other critics did. And they especially went nuts for, for my buddy John there who was playing this crazy dude. And it was a very, it's a very dynamic uh, role, very wild performance and everything. It's about these two brothers. I directed the play, was in it in New York as well. And then uh, John, uh, six months later when we closed, I kept directing different casts in the play and kept it running for a while. I was getting a little money as a director royalty, so I wanted it to keep going because I made $200 a week, and that was, big. that was big. And then John went off and did his first movie called uh, The Killing Fields. Mm. Um, and that started his uh, career. Um, at one point, we were all in the basement together just doing things. We worked... Uh, we worked jobs during the day. I, was a, I worked on a loading dock at Neiman Marcus, unpacking boxes. Malkovich had a job as a school bus driver. Um, <laughs> I hope those children are all right. I hope, I hope they grew up all right. Yeah. All right, all right. This this yeah. this next one, this <laughs> next photo. I don't know if um, you understood how important it would be to your life as it became, but but comment on this particular uh, play. So when I met, and I write about a lot of this in the book because these are important things. Um, and I take the time to examine them because it's, it's part of the journey from self to service and it's the self to service is the, the self focus on my acting career and building that and building my theater company and what I was doing as an actor to this broader service life. And this is an important moment because uh, when I met Moira, who we got, we met in 75, 76, we got married in 1981. And when I met her, she introduced me to her two brothers who had served in Vietnam. Um, she introduced me to her sister who had served in the army after college and married a Vietnam veteran who served as a combat medic in Vietnam. And getting to know them really was uh, an education um, and it really opened my eyes. And, and, you know, when I was a kid in 1970, I, I was in high school in 1973. That was the end of combat operations in Vietnam. Um, I remember my parents were always scared that that war was going to go on. I was going to get drafted. But, you know, during my high school years when Vietnam was raging, I was focused on those girls going into the audition or playing music or doing the plays, and yet the casualty reports were on television all the time, and, and it was going right by me. And then I got to know 
Moira's brothers, talking to them about their service in Vietnam, what it was like for them to go to Vietnam, what it was like for them to come home from Vietnam. And I started to kind of come out of the ether a little bit and realize that I had been kind of oblivious during that period of time. And I felt, I felt sad and I felt embarrassed. I felt like I had been, I felt kind of shameful. And so I thought, you know, at that time, late 70s, early 80s, our Vietnam veterans, we, we didn't have the wall yet. Uh, we hadn't really made amends to our Vietnam veterans at that point. Yet I wanted to try to do something to help uh, our Vietnam veterans. So as, a, as an artist, as a theater director, now I was the artistic director of Steppenwolf. I'm running the company. I decide what plays we're going to do. I'm directing plays now, and I, I thought, I, I want to find a play that focuses on the Vietnam experience and tells the stories of Vietnam veterans. So I'm always on the lookout for plays. I'm reading magazines from different cities to try and find out what they're doing in those cities. And I read something from Los Angeles called The Dramalogue. And it, it said there was a play written by Vietnam veterans being performed on stage at the Odyssey Theater here in Los Angeles. This is 1980. And it was written by a group of Vietnam veterans, and they were all performing the play on stage. Only two of them had ever acted before. The rest of them were just veterans who came together to kind of workshop their experiences and write a play about it. And now they were performing it. And so I flew out here to see it from Chicago, and I was so moved by it. I went back the next night. I was just, it was so powerful. And I begged the guys to let me do it in Chicago. And at first they said no. It should only be performed by veterans. And then it closed in Los Angeles, and nothing was happening to it. And I kept bugging them about it. And finally they gave me the rights to do it. It was a play called Tracers. Two of, these, two of my cast members here were actual Vietnam veterans, but the rest were not. Yet, each night, the theater was filled with veterans. We made one of the performances each week a special night free for veterans. And it started to turn into this cathartic sort of healing experience for local veterans in Chicago where they were just coming out of the shadows and showing up at the theater. And so we created a, something at Steppenwolf called our Vets Night. And we've been doing it ever since 1984 when this play came. And every single play that we do at Steppenwolf for the past 35 years, uh, we have a free night for veterans. And now my foundation, the Gary Sinise Foundation, is a sponsor of that night. And we provide a free meal for the veterans that come. And it all started right here. And these were early seeds that were planted years ago that manifested into a broader service mission later on. Yeah. Um, in a related uh, area, but, uh, um, well, let's put it here. This is Tom Hanks, or so. is that right? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> Brad Pitt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, rec I do recognize this guy. Yeah, so, uh, so in the 90s, so, uh, you know, here I am in, in the 80s. I'm just, uh, I'm focused on local Vietnam veterans in Chicago, trying to help them in various ways, support them uh, through different projects and different things that we were doing continuing to speak to the Vietnam veterans and my own family, and along came 1993 and the opportunity to audition for this movie after we had moved to, to California. I had done Of Mice and Men as a film, and uh, I think Of Mice and Men got the attention of the producers, and, that, uh, and they invited me to come and audition for Lieutenant Dan. I read it, and... You know, when I read it, it was a Vietnam veteran. And I had been, 
I just wanted to do it so badly. And I went in, auditioned for it. Uh, I tell some funny stories in there about the audition. I auditioned one time and then didn't hear anything for like three weeks. And I thought they were going to Bruce Willis or something. I mean, I don't <laughs> Somebody, you know, Brad Pitt, maybe. <laughs> um, and so I went on and auditioned for other things. I auditioned for a movie called Little Buddha. I was this close to getting Little Buddha. <laughs> and I auditioned for uh, Wyatt Earp, the Kevin Costner movie. I, uh, I, I actually screen tested for Little Buddha and to play the father in, in the film. It was directed by Bernardo Bertolucci. So it was, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, well, I didn't get Forrest Gump. I hope I get this. And, uh, and then Costner's movie, I was close to that one. Thankfully, I didn't get either of those. I may have taken them because Forrest Gump came along and uh, they came back and said, uh, I, my agents and manager called me, said, it looks like you might get this, this part. And boy, was I thankful because uh, Forrest Gump was a massive hit and <laughs> Little Buddha, no, nobody saw that. <laughs> Well, uh, you, I think you were, you were nominated for Academy Award for this, weren't you? Yeah, you wouldn't say that, would you? But you were. <laughs> More from a Reagan Forum featuring Gary Sinise after this message. The Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation is the nonprofit organization created by President Reagan himself and specifically charged by him with continuing his legacy and sharing his principles, individual liberty, economic opportunity, global democracy, and national pride. We must remain vigilant and work together to share these conservative principles with younger generations. Your role is critical to move our mission forward. Thank you for your continued support. Please visit reaganfoundation.org give. That's reaganfoundation.org slash give. Now back to a Reagan form featuring Gary Sinise. Uh, I recognize this president. <laughs> you know, I think, I think I recall, I'm not sure, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you told me once this might have been your, your favorite role. Is that right? Or at the it, was, it was certainly uh, one of my favorite uh, roles. It was one of the most challenging, for sure. That's that's like a. Can you see that? I mean, that that's like a full plastic face. Mm. Uh, the makeup was took four and a half hours to put on me every morning. They, I would lay in a chair, in like a dentist chair or some sort of lounge chair. <laughs> And they had a reflexologist come in and rub my feet while I laid there. So I laid there with somebody rubbing my feet for four hours while they applied this, this silicone gel onto my face to transform me into Harry Truman. But it was, it was, a, it was based on the David McCullough book about Truman, which is such a glorious book, beautiful biography. And, um, you know that. I mean, it was it won a bunch of awards, and you know it, it did really well. And I remember going to the Oscars for Lieutenant Dan while I was getting ready to play this part. And like the day after the Oscars were over, I was on an airplane to Kansas City to start shooting that that movie. It was it was it was a good one to work on. Really, really good one. We're, we're going to get to some more serious uh, photos in a minute, but I just wanted to, what is this? <laughs> so anybody have any idea what, what that is? Yeah. One flew over the cuckoo's nest, yeah. So I played McMurphy, the, the Nicholson part in that, and... I, I, I tell some stories about Cuckoo's Nest in there because I, I just fell in love with it. I saw it as a kid on stage first, then they made the movie of it. I, I was at the world premiere of the movie with 
Nicholson and all the cast members there and everything. It was at the Chicago Film Festival that year. Uh, I was just a huge fan of it and uh, always, always loved it. And me and my buddy Terry Kinney, who's one of the co-founders of Steppenwolf and a great director, we decided to do it. We did it in Chicago. It was a big hit there. We moved it to London. It was a big hit there. And then we moved it to Broadway. And it won the, uh, the, the um, best revival that year. Um, and it was fun to be crazy there. <laughs> now, this next moment is probably one of the more formative moments of your life. So this is... Um, there's a, there's a chapter in my book called uh, Turning Point. And it's the September 11th chapter. And there was truly a turning point towards service at that, at that point after that terrible day. And this is, I know everyone can remember, uh, President Bush called for a national day of prayer on the Friday after the Tuesday of September 11th. Churches, houses of worship, every place in the country were packed and filled, people just looking for some sort of comfort. I was. I was standing up on the side of the wall at our little church, and it was filled to the gills. And that was earlier in the day. This is Friday night, and there were candlelight vigils everywhere, right? We were all they were lighting candles and all kinds of things were happening all over the country. And this is, this is the candlelight vigil in our little, on our, I lived in Malibu. That's my wife there under the flag and, and my daughter in the purple, um, Ella. And uh, I remember just everybody from the neighborhood started to walk toward the corner. And there were candles lit and I started to walk there and then I ran back and I, I grabbed that flag out of our, we had a little flag holder, and I, I took it down to the corner. And at one point, everyone started to turn to the flag and say the Pledge of Allegiance. And they were, everybody was singing, God bless America, and just America the beautiful, whatever. It was, it was beautiful. People just needed each other. And so I raised the flag up, and uh, somebody snapped that picture. And I put that picture in my book because it's a, the turning point chapter is a, is a big part of moving into the service work. Now, if this were 1945, we'd be staring at Bob Hope. But that's not, that's Gary Sinise, isn't it, right? Yes, this is, uh, this is November of, of uh, 2003. This is uh, at Camp Anaconda in Balad, Iraq. There's a big soccer stadium there. Uh, I was with Wayne Newton and uh, Chris Isaac. You know Chris Isaac? Yeah. <clears throat> Funny story, Chris is the one who got the part in Little Buddha. <laughs> <laughs> I, I knew we'd come around. We really rocketed his acting career to the, to the heights. <laughs> but he's a funny guy, and we were, we were, we were on this tour together uh, with uh, some Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders, another great country artist named Neil McCoy, and we were all on this tour. And this was before I was playing music for the, for the troops. I would just volunteer to go uh, on tours and shake hands and take pictures and, and talk to the troops and have lunch with them and just let them know I appreciated them. And this is, um, this is at a performance in the soccer, soccer stadium where Wayne and Chris and they were all performing and I, I got up in between acts and, and talked to the troops. There were about 6,000 there in that soccer stadium that day. It was, it was huge and this is very early on. This is before the insurgency really kicked in. Just about it's just about six months after the statue had been pulled down in the square. And uh, I went, I actually went about two months after that. I went in June of 03 for my first tour. And then I came home and I went to Italy. Then I came home and went to Germany. Then I came home and went to the hospitals, Walter Reed, Bethesda. Then I 
Then I went back to Iraq, and this is uh, November of 03. Now, the, there's uh, a lot more people in this audience watching you play the guitar than the first picture we showed. Um, <clears throat> Lieutenant Dan Band. Yeah, this, this is a recent shot. This is just last month. Um, this is um, actually, it's uh, end of July, uh, end of January, I think. This is at Fort Huachuca in Arizona. And it's just, we, we were just there in January. And uh, the Lieutenant Dan Band has, uh, this is our second time at Fort Huachuca. The, the band now has played over 400 some concerts for the military on military bases all over the world. And uh, so we're fairly well known within the military. So we get some big crowds here. That's, that's, a, that's a lot of people. It sure uh, is. Um, this next one is a couple of American heroes. Kind of a tough photograph to look at. Uh, can you, did this story have a happy ending? Yeah, thankfully. Um, yes, this is at Brook Army Medical Center in San Antonio. And, um, you know, I, uh, after September 11th and the deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan and our folks started getting hurt. We started losing them. I started raising my hand to do all kinds of different things for different military charities that are out there. I started visiting the hospitals regularly. This is one of my trips to, um, to Bamsi in San Antonio, and I went into the intensive care unit where um, a Marine pilot, helicopter pilot, had just, just got there, and he had crashed his helicopter in Thailand uh, lost one of his arms and leg, was uh, severely burned. And he doesn't even know, I, he, he doesn't, didn't know I was there then. But his family uh, asked me if I would go in, and I said, sure. And I, I didn't actually know this picture was taken until uh, his wife sent it years later, sent it to me. Uh, he's doing well. I, I would visit the hospital regularly, so I remember the first time I saw his face, because I can't see his face there, obviously. I remember going back about three months later, he was in a wheelchair, and I got to meet him, talk to him. Um, then I went back again, he was on prosthetics, and I went back again, and he was getting ready to retire. He's now a school teacher in Michigan, and he's mm -hmm. doing well. No, I once had the honor of working at the Red Cross, and we went off to Iraq and that sort of thing. And uh, so this next photo, I recognize it looks like an army, it looks like a medical tent of some kind. So I presume this is Iraq or Afghanistan. Where are we here, Gary? Yes, this is back at Camp Anaconda. Uh, so uh, as I said, I was there in 03, and I went back in 07 to visit my friend right here, uh, General Robin Rance, stand up, Robin, because I'm going to introduce you. So I'm visiting Robin. He's a one star here, and he was uh, running the air wing there, uh, doing combat missions. And uh, so we went to the hospital on the base to visit are wounded at the hospital and see the staff members and just try to bring some light in there. And this is one of the wounded I met in the hospital. I've often, unfortunately, I don't know who that is. And we've tried to figure it out. We've tried to find out because I've taken so many thousands and thousands of pictures with our troops and everything. And I often look at, at pictures and wonder if everybody's okay, you know. I see large group shots all the time of me with a gigantic group of folks. And, and they, you know, I left the war zone while they stayed. And you often wonder, did everybody come home? Were they all, all right? And uh, I think he's doing all right. I mean, he was, he was doing pretty well then. And then he was probably getting ready to, to go home. They were stabilizing him here at Anaconda. And then he was getting ready to go home.
How many, uh, how many trips, Gary, have you made uh, to s visit with our men and women in uniform to Iraq and Afghanistan? Well, uh, Iraq, I think, five times, and Afghanistan, maybe three. Yeah. I was just there uh, a little over a year ago with the chief of staff of the Army, uh, General Mark Milley, who is now going to be the chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff. Um, and he's a friend, and uh, I went with him on one of his, his trips uh, on the last time we hit both Afghanistan and Iraq on that trip. I, I'm not sure. I think this next shot is Afghanistan. You're wearing a bulletproof vest, I know that. Um, but it's really kind of, I picked this one out because it's such a joyful shot. You know? Yeah, yeah. So, so many of these things are documented in the book as I tell the story here. And uh, one of the things that we were able to do after that trip uh, with Wayne, um, uh, where I was talk talking to the troops and all that, uh, during that trip, we actually got in a convoy and we went out to um, a school. They, the, the troops wanted us to show us. And remember, this is November of 03. So it's, it's before the insurgency really started to kick in. But it was very, very dangerous at the time. Yet they wanted to take us out to show us a school that they had rebuilt and refurbished for the children of Iraq. So we got in a convoy and we went out and they showed us this school and the, the, the greatest impression I left with was the children surrounding our troops and just hugging them to death. I mean, jumping on the, the troops would get down on their hands and knees and the kids would climb all over them and it was just, it was a fun day to see how the kids were reacting to our soldiers over there. But a lot of that wasn't being reported, you know. It got worse and worse. If you th think back to 04, 05, 06, 07, the news was coming back and it wasn't good. Yet there were all these civil affairs projects going on all the time, and I saw them. So when I got back after that 03 trip, I teamed up with Laura Hillenbrand, who wrote Unbroken, Unbroken and Seabiscuit, great writer, and Laura had a project that she wanted to get Seabiscuit translated into Arabic and send the book over to the troops to read to the kids and give to the kids. And when I got home from Iraq on that second trip and having visited the school, I, I went to my children's school, Our Lady of Malibu in Malibu, little Catholic school, and I showed them pictures of the of the visit that I made to the school. I showed them pictures of the Iraqi kids. And, and I said, why don't we collect a bunch of school supplies, put them in boxes, pencils and paper? Because when I went to the school, they didn't have any of that stuff. It was just, you know, you'd see four kids sitting at a desk, and they'd share one little pencil. They didn't have anything. So we collected a bunch of school supplies, boxed them up, and we sent 25 boxes over to the to the base that I visited, uh, Camp Anaconda, and they took them out and gave them to the kids at the school that I'd visited. And then after that, I started a program called Operation Iraqi Children, where we started collecting school supplies and sending them to the troops, and they would take them out all over the place. And then we teamed up with uh, Mary Eisenhower, who is the granddaughter of General Dwight Eisenhower, and she runs the people-to-people -people organization that he started back when he was just uh, leaving the presidency. And we teamed up with them and they brought us under their wing and we had, now we had a 501c3, we could take in donations. So we took in thousands of donations, we bought school supplies, boxed them up, and we shipped them all over the place. And once we expanded to Afghanistan and Djibouti and Haiti and all these different places, we made it, instead of Operation Iraqi Children, we made it into Operation International Children. This is 2009, right around, around Thanksgiving. A soldier had contacted me about getting some supplies shipped to them. And I said, well, I'll do you one better. I'll bring them with me and bring them out to you, your school. So here I am on the border between uh, right, the Pakistan-Afghanistan border. Uh, we brought about 500 backpacks full of supplies out there. 
and I got to hand them over to the kids. It was a great, great day. Now, this was your other day job, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, so there's a chapter in my book called Perfect Timing, and it's about CSI New York and the timing of CSI New York. I got CSI New York in 2004. That's when I started doing it. And I was, at the time, I was visiting our troops. I was starting to play concerts for them. I was starting to support multiple military charities. Uh, yet I had no resources. I remember trying to just produce the shows myself and put my own money in and do some with the USO, but the USO only pays $50 a day. Um, and I was asking these musicians to play with me and do these things that I wanted to do, and so I had to find ways to pay them, and I came up with a bunch of different ways, including uh, my, my bank account. <laughs> <laughs> and then, then along came this gift of CSI New York that I had for, for nine years, nine seasons, 197 episodes. And, And it was perfect because, uh, you know, I made a great deal on it. My agents are here. They, they made a great deal. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I'm still living off that deal. Um, but it gave me this, this financial thing that I'd never had as an actor. You know, I'd been up and down and up and down. And that's what actors do. They you do a little bit here. It goes up and then it goes down. <laughs> but all of a sudden I was on a show that was lasting year after year after year. And I... I actually had points in the show, which was a good thing. And so now I had these financial resources that I could do all kinds of cool things with. And so I was supporting multiple military charities, uh, making donations where I, where I could, able to produce the band shows, pay the band members, all of that. And CSI New York, without that, I wouldn't have had that, those resources that I was able to also use to start the Gary Sinise Foundation. Uh, I know your agent's here tonight, Gary. Can we expect you to see see you on TV or in film again, guys? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. They they would actually like me to go back on television, but you know, I can't say I won't, and I can't. Uh, I I love doing it. But when people ask me if I miss it, and I've been off television now since uh, 2016, primarily and solely focused on this service mission, which is so rewarding and so fulfilling that I feel God just sort of handed me some, some good health and uh, great family support and, uh, and a <laughs> wonderful uh, job here to allow me to do some some pretty wonderful things, and you know, I, I write about the importance of so many of these moments in the book and how they have changed the course of my life and given me uh, great, great purpose and meaning, and I'll always be happy for CSI New York, especially when those checks come in. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this last photograph is, uh, I just included, because uh, Korea, North Korea is on a lot of people's mind um, this week for a lot of good reasons. I think this is a shot of you in Korea, right? This is up on the DMZ between North and South Korea. So, you know, one of, one of the things I, I, I try to talk about uh, beyond the service work, you know, is, is the importance of the, the, of the reason for it. And... You know, when you go to places like this, uh, the, you know, you stand on the border between North and South Korea, and you are, you are able to, I don't know, has anybody been, been there to the DMZ? Okay, so you know what I'm talking about back there. So I can stand here, and North Korean Guard is here. There's only a little cement block about this high and it's the border line, and it goes all the way down the border. And he can stand on his side, looking right in my face, and I can stand right here and look in 
his face. The people in the South have been free for all those decades, supported and defended by the United States of America. And this person that I'm staring at right there has absolutely no concept what freedom is at all. He's grown up as a slave to the supreme dictator leader. He has no, and, and when you look at that person, and seriously, I can, I can stare right into his eyes. You just see this hollow, shallow, empty soul. Just, just imagine what it must be like to grow up and not be able to say what you want go where you want, do what you want, worship how you want. Your job is to worship the supreme leader. And, and so when you go to places like that, Afghanistan, Iraq, places that have been un, under the thumb of dictatorships, you value your freedom that much more. And it makes you think a lot about your freedom providers and how important and essential they are. And I, I'll never forget that day of September 11, 2001, when our country was on the ropes. We were down on our knees. We didn't know what was gonna happen. We were afraid. Anthrax is floating through the mail, you know, within a month after that event. And we're all thinking, what's going on? We all had that sense of, what do we do? You know, how do we, where can I put my energy? And, I decided that it was important to make sure that our current active duty defenders deploying to Iraq and Afghanistan in response to that terrible event, unlike what happened to our Vietnam veterans when they came home and had to hide, unlike what happened to them when the country turned it back, its back on them, I wanted to make sure that I did my bit. That's it. Just did my bit to make sure that everybody deploying and serving would know that they're appreciated and supported. And it took, that's, that, that's it. it. We have just a few minutes to take a question or two from our good audience here. If you've got a question, uh, might, you, might you raise your hand and we'd be happy to put a microphone in and you could ask my friend Gary a question. So we'll start right over here. Thank you very much. This was amazing. You're an amazing person. And my question to you is, how does an American-loving, conservative, great values survive in Malibu? <laughs> <laughs> Keep your head down. That's, that's it. <laughs> no, no. You know, we, we eventually moved. <laughs> I, I never went to the beach anyway, so I, I, what, what were we doing there? Okay. Let me think. Let me think. I'm I'm a biggest fan. Can I take a picture with you? Yes, come here. Yes, back here. Good evening. Thank you for having this, this opportunity. 
And uh, I had a husband come home from Vietnam five times. It was always interesting. Slept like a baby, though. He said he was doing his job. But I would like to thank you for the opportunity you provided me. Uh, I'm a quilt of valor quilter. And what? What? quilt of valor. We give oh. them award oh, yes. to veterans. Yeah. Okay. And two of my friends are here with me as part of our group. But I also belong to a group that provides quilts for the Snowball Express. <laughs> and we have a great time. Can I just say something? Yes, please go. So let me, let me just say what that is. She mentioned something called Snowball Express. Snow, Snowball is something uh, that I, I've supported since uh, 2007. It was started uh, by a couple of veterans who wanted to do something positive uh, for the children of our fallen heroes. So they started bringing the kids to Disneyland back in 07, 08, 06, 07, 08. And then I got involved in 07. We moved it to Dallas because American Airlines was very supportive. And this is hundreds of children of our fallen that we would bring uh, to Disneyland and then Dallas. And now Snowball Express is a program of the Gary Sinise Foundation. And just this last December, we took uh, 1,722 Gold Star family members, over 1,000 of them children, to Disney World. And, uh, Right here. Hi, Gary. I wanted to ask, I want to follow up on Nancy Reagan's question. Why won't you run for Senate? <laughs> what? Why won't you run for Senate? <laughs> You're putting me on the spot. <laughs> oh, no, I get too much done the way I'm doing it right now. <laughs> you know, get too much done. Thank you. Um, Governor Wilson, right here. Gary, yes, sir. Tell them about soaring values and what you soaring, soaring valor. Yeah. Yes, sir. So, uh, at the Gary Sinise Foundation, we have several programs. They all kind of started because of some personal uh, thing I was doing, or uh, the program that Governor Wilson is talking about is called Soaring Valor. I have a great long history with the National World War II Museum in New Orleans. Has anybody been there to the National World War II? It's, everyone should go to the National World War II Museum. It, it's exceptional. Uh, every young student should go to that museum. Uh, but as, as we all know, uh, and we have World War II veterans here today, I think, at least I saw some in the line. We have a World War So both of the gentlemen here have been a part of our Soaring Valor program at the Gary Sinise Foundation. I, my Uncle Jack served uh, as a navigator on a B-17 over Europe in uh, World War II. Uh, after I got involved with the National World War II Museum, uh, they record our veterans on video and they preserve them in the archive at the museum. And, and the museum, when you walk through the museum, you can experience the stories of World War II World War II through the eyes of the people that fought that war on video, those stories are told and preserved and shared with people that go to the museum. My uncle did one of those videos, and when he passed away, I, um, I asked them to send me the video. And I watched it, and I was, I was very emotional about it. Loved my Uncle Jack, and, and um, very emotional about the, seeing the video. And so I called the museum and said, you know, what can I do to help the museum uh, through the foundation? And so they asked if, um, if we would sponsor a, one of their historians. So now the Gary Sinise Foundation sponsors one of the historians to go out around the country and record these, the oral histories of our World War II veterans. 
I wanted to take it one step further and try to get as many of our World War II veterans down to the museum as possible right now. So with a great relationship with American Airlines, once again, I went to them and said, I got this idea. Let's take World War II veterans to the museum. So we've done, we've done multiple trips down to the museum. I've traveled with maybe 600 World War II veterans myself to the National World War II Museum. Um, in 2017, I wanted to add an additional component, and this is, this is great, because it's, it's so important that we're, we're in this window of opportunity with regards to our World War II veterans. And so I thought, let's team them up with high school students. Let's add high school kids onto these trips and pair them up with a World War II veteran. So now we take high school students, each one of those students gets to travel personally with their, little, their travel buddy, a World War II veteran, and spend three days traveling to the National World War II Museum through our Soaring Valor program. I encourage you to go to the Gary Sinise Foundation website and look at our YouTube's, uh, YouTube channel, the Soaring Valor program. It's so heartwarming to see these kids. Uh, they get an education that they would never get anywhere else by, by going there. And, and remember, that event is the most significant event in our history. Never before was freedom on the line so much. I mean, there's, there was two choices, you know, two options. We either win or lose. Thankfully, we won because of these gentlemen here and their, and their fellow service members. But we should all consider the fact, what if we had not won? The world would be a completely and totally different place than it is now. So education about the cost of freedom, what it takes to preserve it, protect it. Again, that's a component of the Gary Sinise Foundation that I feel is very, very important. And we try to keep education as part of what we do. We want people to know not only that they should support the men and women who serve our country, but why they should do it. Yeah. You know. uh, Gary, we have time for one last question. We'll take it from our friends up here in the balcony. Yes, sir. Hello, Gary. I, I spent uh, two and a half tours in Vietnam in the 60s. My two brothers also. Um, my two daughters were also in the Navy. We have 26 family members that have, my immediate family members that have been in the service. So from the bottom of our hearts, from the Irish family, thank you for your service. Welcome home to all our Vietnam veterans out there. Gary, on behalf of a truly appreciative audience, I just want to say what an honor it is to spend an evening with you. Thank you so, so much for coming. Thank, thank you, Greg. Thank you. Thank you. This was not Gary's first visit to our campus. Over the past 10 to 15 years, he has become a true friend to the Reagan Library. He's the face and voice for our online video tour of the Reagan Library, which can be found on our website at reaganlibrary.com. And most recently, he helped sponsor a Gold Star Families Memorial Monument, which we unveiled at the Reagan Library on Veterans Day in 2018. I don't think that we can ever do enough for the men and women who sacrifice and the families who sacrifice alongside them. But we can always try to find additional ways to do a little bit more to make sure that they know that we do remember and we do appreciate and we are grateful and we do not take it for granted. Our freedom is precious. It must be fought for and protected and handed down to the next generation for them to do the same, as Ronald Reagan said. Gary Sinise is a selfless and remarkable man. What he does for our military, for their families, and for wounded warriors is nothing short of heroic. Copies of his book can be purchased through the Reagan Library Museum Store. Every purchase you make from our catalog, website, or museum store is a critical component to our success. In short, your purchase supports our efforts to extend the legacy of President Ronald Reagan. 
Purchases can be made at reaganlibrary.com store. Thank you for listening. To find a listing of all upcoming events, please visit reaganfoundation.org events. For more information on the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute, including information on how to become a member, information on upcoming exhibits at the Reagan Library, and more information on the legacy of President Reagan, please visit reaganfoundation.org. And don't forget to like and follow the Reagan Foundation on all social media platforms. Until next week, thanks for listening, and God bless you. Don't forget to subscribe to A Reagan Forum podcast in your iTunes or Google Play stores and on other podcast platforms as they become available. New episodes of A Reagan Forum come out every Thursday. Like what you hear? Check out our Words to Live By podcast featuring radio addresses and speeches Ronald Reagan delivered from the 1960s through the 1980s. New episodes drop every Tuesday. And don't forget to follow at Ronald Reagan on Facebook, at Ronald Reagan 40 on Twitter, and Reagan Foundation on YouTube. Also, search for us on SoundCloud and Stitcher.